this communion again, we turn uh, to Isaiah chapter 53 and the paragraph verses 4 to 6 at this time, thinking in this pre-communion service of the sufferings of Jesus in verse number 4. The most fascinating and creative piece of local radio I think that I have ever heard, and perhaps you remember it too and would agree with me, was a weekend of radio devoted to speaking with local people who had been diagnosed with cancer. Many of you will be aware that every hour, one person in Northern Ireland is diagnosed with cancer. And what an insight that radio weekend was to suffering in this province. Parents in that program spoke of their pain in losing a child of just two days old. A girl of 12 was interviewed and described how she missed out on so much that her peers had enjoyed because of the, tra- the cancer treatment that she had experienced. Nurses, spouses, parents of sufferers, sufferers themselves spoke of the pain that they experienced in caring for others. The mental, the physical, the spiritual and emotional agony of siblings, family and friends were described and was deeply moving to all who were able to listen. It was a fascinating weekend of program and just a small glimpse into some of the suffering within our province. And in this pre-communion service, we come to this verse that addresses the physical and emotional sufferings of humanity. Verse 4, our griefs, our sorrows. I'm sure you will agree with Albert Barnes, the American commentator, when he calls this verse an exceedingly important verse. It's a verse that addresses not the root of sin in our hearts, but the consequences of sin in our bodies and in our emotions. The two words used in this fourth verse, griefs and sorrows, are significant. Griefs is a word which describes suffering in our bodies. Sorrows is a word which describes sufferings in our souls and emotions. Grief refers to something physical. It means sickness, illness, as Matthew 8 translates it, physical pain. The word is translated sickness or disease in other places in the Old Testament. Chapter 39, verse 9 of Isaiah translates the word sickness to describe the illness of Hezekiah the king. The other word, sorrows, refers to something inner, our emotions, our feelings, to anguish, mental turmoil, fear, grief, guilt, doubt, frustration, despair, depression, shame, anxiety, our Sorrows, what psychologists would call our negative emotions. The next verse will address the root of suffering in our bodies and emotions when it mentions transgressions and iniquities. But this verse, verse 4, mentions the symptoms 
of our sin, expressed in our body and illnesses and in our emotions and sorrows. And so this verse is taking us back to the very beginning of humanity when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God in the garden. You remember the command that God gave to Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And if they did eat of that tree, they would surely die. However, Adam lived until he was 930 years of age. So we have to ask the question, did God change his mind about the threat of death? Or are we to understand that threat of death in another way? It's the second option that we're to adopt. We're to understand that threat of death in a fuller way. Because the day that they sinned, they begun to die. The seeds of death were planted in them. Illnesses would come to their and our bodies. Dark emotions would enter into their and our souls. Our catechism uses the phrase, all the miseries of this life as a consequence of the fall. And part of those miseries are the griefs and the sorrows, the illnesses in our bodies and the negative emotions in our hearts. As we come to consider this verse, we think of our griefs and our sorrows in relation to the Lord Jesus and his love and care for us. All week we'll be thinking about the sufferings of Jesus as we prepare for communion. The whole point of our pre-communion service and the benefit of having it on the Sabbath morning before the communion, not just because more people are here, but also because it gives us longer to think of the sufferings of Christ rather than the traditional pre-communion on a Thursday or a Friday evening. And so our mind will be thinking of Jesus' love and Jesus' sufferings all of this week. And this verse is so useful for us to correct us, to guide us, to sharpen our understanding. Because in this verse, there is a wrong understanding of the sufferings of Jesus. And it helps us to ask ourselves and to open the Bible to find the correct understanding of the sufferings of Jesus. So we want to notice the false Thoughts about Jesus' sufferings in our verse. That's the second part of our verse. We want to notice that the true thoughts of Jesus' sufferings, that's in the first part of our verse. And then some practical thoughts about Jesus' sufferings as we relate him to ourselves. Let's think, first of all then, about the false thoughts about Jesus' sufferings that are found in the second half of verse 4. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Here's the assessment of the people who saw 
Jesus suffer. They witnessed his pain of rejection by his nation, Israel. The accusations of civil government of Pilate and Herod and the Sanhedrin, the religious leadership. The abandonment by friends, by family, by disciples. The agony of his scourging and of his crucifixion. They saw all the suffering. Suffering from Jews. Suffering from Gentiles. His suffering in body. His suffering in soul. The mental, the emotional, the physical suffering of Jesus. They saw it. They witnessed it. And as they watched the horror of it, seeing him go down further into suffering than any other person ever had or ever will, they try to interpret it. They saw what was happening to him. And like Job and his friends, they try to understand and interpret his suffering. The phrase used in verse 4, we esteemed him, describes their assessment process. The word means to reckon, to study, to analyze. Sometimes it's used in a bad way of plotting, of scheming, of Joseph's brothers. For example, Genesis 50 verse 20, he says about that time they sold him into Egypt, you thought evil against me. And the word thought there is the same word as esteemed here. They planned it. We can imagine the brothers sitting around the campfire planning getting rid of Joseph. There was thought. There was analysis. There was scheming involved. The word is used of Saul plotting the downfall of David in 1 Samuel 18.25. Saul thought to make David fall. This young whippersnapper, this upstart is pulling away the attention of the people from Saul to, to David because of his conquest of Goliath. And Saul with his generals and soldiers and council was planning, analyzing, scheming the downfall of David. The word is also used in a good sense in Exodus 31 verse 4, of those who devised cunning works or intricate furniture for the tabernacle. Those craftsmen and women in their guilds sitting around the table with plans of the, the lampstand and of the table of incense and of the Ark of the Covenant. What thought, what planning went into the production of the tabernacle furniture. And so this is a rich word, a word of contemplation, a word of thought, a word of analysis. This is not a, a knee-jerk reaction, an, an off-the-cuff remark. They're thinking about this. They're looking at the suffering. They're drinking this in. They're trying to process it in their minds and hearts. We esteemed him. This is their studied, considered conclusion. But it was absolutely wrong. Their conclusion was he was stricken. See the three terms used? We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, 
and afflicted. And again, each of these words has a a rich Old Testament connection to emphasize the low thoughts they had of Christ and who he was and their wrong understanding of his true identity. The word stricken was used in 1 Samuel 5, verse 6 and 9 of the Philistines and the tumors which God sent to afflict them for taking the Ark of the Covenant in battle. They were stricken by God, 1 Samuel 5, 6 and 9. Those pagans, those Philistines, those blasphemers, those idolaters, that's the camp that these religious assessors are placing the Son of God. He, like those Philistines, was stricken by God. The second phrase, smitten by him, is a well-known Old Testament word used in connection with leprosy. Sixty times, sixty times in the book of Leviticus, this word is used of someone being smitten with leprosy, plagued with leprosy. So frequent is the usage that Jerome, when he came to translate the, the Old Testament from the Hebrew into the Latin, that he used the word leper here. He was stricken, made a leper, he says, by God, and afflicted. And it emphasizes the isolation, the humiliation associated with anyone who had leprosy. It depicts Christ, abandoned, rejected, despised by the masses, smitten, plagued by God. And afflicted, word is used in Genesis 15, 13 of the people of Israel going down into Egypt and then being afflicted by Pharaoh for 400 years, treated as slaves, oppressed. And and you see the type of assessment that the people are making here. How they esteem him, their considered opinion, their conclusion after studying the sufferings of Jesus, scourged, crucified, rejected, condemned. How do they understand this person and his work? Who is he? Well, he's like a leper. He's like a Philistine. He's like a slave, oppressed and afflicted. Their understanding of the sufferings of Jesus. They look at his big suffering and they think that he must be a big sinner. They make this connection between suffering and sin which was common among the people of Jesus' time and some people in the Old Testament. They claim that his grief and his suffering betrays a heart that is dark, that is evil, that is sinful. They esteemed him, smitten by God, stricken and afflicted. On one occasion, the cosmetic store Lush displayed pictures of police officers in their shop window with the caption, 
paid to lie. They had pictures of policemen and women with this big sign on it, paid to lie. And police commissioners argued that their sign was a misrepresentation. Some officers had been found to be lying, but what to categorize all of them with this sign was outrageous, the police commission judged. Not all were corrupt, it argued. Just a, a very, 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 very small minority. Their understanding, their announcement, their statement was a misrepresentation of the reality. Here are the leaders, people of Israel, assessing the sufferings of Jesus, wrestling with it, trying to understand it, studying it, analyzing it. And this is their conclusion of the sufferings of Jesus. He's struck by God. He's been judged by God. There's something sinister in his life, in his heart, that God would allow and bring such suffering upon him. Let me just think for a few moments on this second half of our verse. There are many things wrong with this, of course, but there are two actions which affect us in our pre-communion and challenge us. One is our tendency to elevate ourselves by debasing others, to think the best of ourselves and the worst of others, to lift me up in my estimation by putting you down. And the reality is that it's not hard to do. For in all of us, there are imperfections. We just have to look hard enough and long enough at one another, or in some cases, not very hard, to find many faults. And that's what they were doing here. And in this pre-communion, we're being challenged to correct the wrong and sinful attitudes we might have to anyone in this congregation. Rather than finding fault, there are other options, better options for us to choose. One is to ignore the faults. And the other is to forgive them. But there's a second sinful action here which is a chief part of our mistake in misjudging others, which is that while we're keen to look at others' faults, we ignore our own. How much better would it have been for these Sadducees and Pharisees and for Pilate and Herod to have looked into their own hearts and to try and look into the hearts of Jesus of Nazareth? even sometimes when we don't find an obvious sin as they were doing here we like them can try and twist some word or some action just to avoid that self-examination that we should engage in pre-communion is the time for us to close the door to put our way our phone and our tablet for a time just to look at ourselves. What type of father am I? Are you 
What type of husband, what type of wife, what type of mother, what type of child, what type of sibling, what type of Christian, what type of church member? Let us ask the searching questions that we ask about others. Let us ask them of ourselves before God. So the wrong thoughts about the sufferings of Jesus. Let's think about the right thoughts. The true thoughts about the sufferings of Jesus in the first part of our verse. This verse is a confession, isn't it? It's an acknowledgement that they got this wrong. It's saying, it's giving the true understanding of Jesus, of his heart, of his life. The truth was very different from what they said from the conclusion that they came to. Rather than being rejected and judged by God for his own sins, this was the Jesus who really lived among us, they're saying. He was a person of compassion, a person of love, a person of sympathy. He carried our griefs and our sorrows. Perhaps enlightened by the Holy Spirit, perhaps evidenced and changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They're changing their understanding and their view now. There's a tone of repentance here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Rather than being rejected by God, God was in him. Rather than being dark and black, light was in him. Rather than being filled with hatred, love was in him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But how did he do this? How did he fulfill this loving ministry, this gracious behavior, this wonderful attitude? In three ways. By sympathy. He bore our griefs by sympathy. Problem shared, we say, is a problem halved, and that's true. When, as long as the person we share our problem with doesn't share it with multiple other people, and then our problem is absolutely magnified. But by telling our story, our, our, our sorrow, our trouble, often we unburden ourselves. We say to a sympathetic listener, our worry, our fear, our guilt, our shame. It's lifted off us for a moment and someone else bears it. And in this way, by sympathy, Jesus bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. On many occasions, he was moved with compassion for the multitudes. Those who were ill, those who were hungry, those who were afraid, his heart went out to them. He loved them and he reached out to help them by sympathy still from heaven. Jesus reaches into our hearts and he bears our griefs and he carries our sorrows. At the grave of Lazarus, you remember, he wept. He entered into the loss and the grief and the sorrow of Mary and Martha cried over the city of Jerusalem at their unbelief and blindness of heart. He bore our griefs. He was moved. He was affected. 
These things just didn't bounce off. He wasn't callous or hard or indifferent to the plight of mankind. He moved among us with sympathy and empathy. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. But secondly, by healing, and this is the point being made in our reading in Matthew chapter 8, at the end of a list of miracles, the writer says this prophecy was fulfilled. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. In this sense, that, that Jesus lifted the load that was hanging on the people by healing them. He took it away, the shame, the worry, the stress, the inability, the trouble, the headache. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. The leper, the demon-possessed, the blind, the paralyzed, the deaf, they had sicknesses. He lifted those griefs and those sorrows from the people. The leper, full of leprosy, shut out from his family, shut out from the temple, isolated, unable to work. What a burden that was. Jesus healed the leper. He carried the grief. He bore the sorrow. The widow of Nain, having lost her son, the bread, the potential breadwinner, What a burden came down upon that woman alongside of the emotional sorrow was her fear of poverty, of sleepless nights, of empty cupboards, of begging, borrowing, stealing, just to survive the loneliness and sorrow of her life. And Jesus came to her and bore her grief and carried her sorrow by raising her son from the dead. The man in Jerusalem who was blind from birth What a burden his blindness was, never to have seen the light of day, never to have seen the green grass and the blue sky, having no hope of ever seeing them. What a burden that was, what a grief and a sorrow. But Jesus, healing that man, bore his griefs, carried his sorrows. Rather than being stricken by God, judged by God, rejected by God, He was a man of compassion, full of grace and love and goodness and mercy. But the third way was by his atonement. And verse number five seems to to make this point. But he was pierced for our transgressions. The true explanation of Jesus' sufferings is that he was dying not for for his sins but for our sins. And in his death for our sins, he's dealing with the very root of our illnesses in our body and our negative emotions in our feelings. By taking away our sins and dying for our iniquities, he's addressing the cause of those symptoms in our lives. Lance Park needs the the road resurfaced. There's potholes all over the place. I know there's no prospect of this in the next two decades, but the need is there. We don't just need bits of tar or stone thrown into a few holes here and there. We need the whole thing dug up and resurfaced and relayed. 
This ultimately is what Jesus did in his death. He addressed the cause of illness and the cause of negative emotions in his people by bearing our transgressions, by dying for our iniquity. What a saviour he is then. And we're to follow him. We cannot make atonement for one another's sins. We do not have the powers to heal one another's illnesses. But like Jesus, we can show sympathy to one another who have illness in their body and grief in their hearts. We can help others carry their trouble along the journey of life. And how wonderful it would be that it's said of you and I, whatever anyone else says about us, he, she, has borne our griefs. By a phone call, by a text message, by a beef chat at the end of the church service. Let us follow the example of love and compassion of Jesus. In the manse on Friday night, I was cajoling this, this lady about what she was doing at the, the weekend. Are you watching the rugby then? Are you following the football then? And all, all this kind of conversation. And eventually I, I drew out of her and reluctantly what she was doing. She was going on Friday night out to a restaurant with a woman just starting her cancer treatment. A woman deeply affected by this who's been preparing for this to help this woman through the journey that lay ahead of her. She was taking her out. She was bearing her grief. She was carrying her sorrow. The practical thought as we finish today is that we will suffer in this life. This verse has been misused to teach that Jesus heals all diseases today that Christians should not experience any illness in their bodies or, or any negative emotions in their souls. We reject that teaching. First John 1.9 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And where there is sin, there will be suffering in our body and in our hearts. But we also say that while we will suffer in this life, we will not suffer in the life to come. Jesus Christ in his death has addressed the very root and heart of illness and negative emotions in our lives. And in the new heavens and the new earth, such will be the virtue of his death and his atonement. The Bible says that God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. 
There will be no more curse. There will be no more effects of the fall in the new heavens and in the new earth. Chapter 35 of Isaiah verse 10 says that those who arrive in heaven by the grace and atonement of Christ will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The word sickness or illness or grief in verse 4 was used in Deuteronomy 29 verse 59 and 61 of God's threat to his people that if they turned away from him, he would bring all kinds of illnesses or griefs on them. By the atonement of Christ, in the new heavens and in the new earth, there will be no curse, no sin, No illness, no sorrow. Wrong understandings of Jesus' suffering. True understandings of Jesus' suffering. So in this week, let us think of Jesus' love for us, the magnitude of it, the wonder of it. Remember that this life of love for suffering, of suffering, Suffering, yes, at the hand of God, but suffering and dying for us.